The Mycenaean himself, as well as most of his art, is found in the tombs, for he folded and buried his dead in uncomfortable jars and seldom cremated them, as the heroic age would do. Apparently, he believed in a future life, for many objects of use and value were placed in the graves. For the rest, Mycenaean religion, so far as it reveals itself to us, gives every evidence of Cretan origins. Here, as in Crete, are the double axe, the sacred pillar, the holy dove, and the cult of a mother goddess associated with a young male deity, presumably her son. From the Life of Greece by Will Durant. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. Today's episode is the third in the new series about ancient Greece. But really, it's the first episode that actually delves into history, since the first two episodes were introductions. Now, we'll begin with ancient Mycenae, a culture lost to time and not rediscovered until the 19th century. In fact, Mycenae was not simply lost, but it was under layers of other lost civilizations. By now, you should know that Egypt was long considered to be the most ancient society in history until the ruins of Sumer were uncovered. But as it turned out, there were other early civilizations in the Mediterranean about which we knew nothing prior to the late 19th century. In the last series, I described what little we know today about early civilization on the island of Crete and the Minoan society that ruled there while the pharaohs started the new kingdom in Egypt and the Hittites expanded their power in Anatolia, and the Assyrians and the Babylonians waged their centuries-long struggle for hegemony in Mesopotamia. In fact, the civilization on Crete, in the Aegean, was only rediscovered after Mycenae was dug up. Yet it was Minoan culture on Crete that came before the later Indo-European-speaking culture of Mycenae on mainland Greece. Now, before we get on with digging up Mycenae, this ancient ancestor of our Western traditions, I want to direct your attention to the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org, if you are not already familiar with it. A lot of my listeners come to me through Spotify, Podbean, and other mediums, so you might not know that you can find links to all the episodes there on the website. There are pictures, maps, source lists, transcripts, and more. The episodes are divided into series, and you will find these episodes under the tab for the second series, The Greek Sun. Anyway, let's get started with the first authentically Western culture of our history series, the Mycenaeans. And I should note right away that my pronunciation of Mycenae may be different than what you hear elsewhere. Some people pronounce the C in Mycenae hard, like a K, Mycenae, or you may hear the Y pronounced as a short I, Mycenae, and so on. In truth, these mentioned variations are probably closer to the original Greek pronunciation, which did not have a soft C pronounced like an S, but I was raised with this pronunciation and I have found it impossible to consistently pronounce it otherwise. So, let us step for the first time onto the shores of Greece. Let us cross over, like St. Paul after being summoned by that mysterious Macedonian in a vision, into the true home of our Western traditions, Europe. Located on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, future home of the now famous Spartans, Mycenae, its capital anyway, was located several miles inland. Though it was a seafaring culture, they kept their homes and precious goods far from the coast, probably as a protection against piracy. 
yet they remained close to the shore so that they could easily practice piracy of their own. Yes, as I explained in the episode on the Phoenicians in the last series, the difference between a so-called honest merchant on the ocean waves and a bloody pirate was virtually negligible. Of course, there is another danger from the water which might explain their distance from the sea when they depended on it to such an extent. We must remember that the Aegean, even today, is a volcanically active area. It was particularly so in that second millennium BC when the volcano at Thera erupted and the resulting tsunami wiped out many settlements on the shoreline of Crete, shorelines of Crete and doubtless on many islands in the Aegean. So the inhabitants of this region may have innately understood that placing your city or village on the seashore might not be a good idea even in the absence of piracy. Now, there had been people in this region since time immemorial. Hominids, perhaps Homo erectus, had probably come into southeastern Europe hundreds of thousands of years before, maybe millions of years. The only evidence for them in Europe is actually farther west in Spain and Italy, but it is not so hard to believe that there may be undiscovered remains elsewhere on the continent, especially so close to the pleasant Mediterranean climate. We have already seen how even archaeological digs on the island of Crete have revealed, have revealed possible human and other hominid presence going back hundreds of thousands of years. Certainly, Neanderthal man would have found reason to enjoy the environment and the game of the peninsula in prehistoric times. Now, Western hunter-gatherers, a genetically diverse population of early modern humans, which inhabited Europe for at least tens of thousands of years, would most likely have been the first inhabitants of the Peloponnesus that we would recognize as our cousins if not our brothers. There is little evidence so far for their presence specifically in Greece, but it seems likely that they would have expanded into this area as they did into so many other regions of the continent. Like all hunter-gatherers, they lived and had been living the Eden dream for millennia, in thousands of iterations again and again, each generation eating, sleeping, and hunting and procreating in the wilderness without thought for future or past. Sometime after the last glacial maximum, though, humans in the Levant and in Anatolia became dependent on agriculture for survival. Succeeding generations multiplied in number, though the specimen of man became a weaker creature, more prone to illness and less fit for survival in the natural environment which surrounded their farmlands. Archaeology has shown that these people, known to science today as Anatolian farmers, expanded outward from that peninsula into Europe and essentially replaced the hunter-gatherers, though there are genetic traces of these earliest men and women in modern European blood. These Anatolian farmer cultures, also known as early European farmers, covered the surface of Europe as if in fulfillment of the biblical mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the earth. This latter part, the dominion, was increasingly true in comparison to the previous hunter-gatherer population. Farmers subdued and subjugated surrounding land as their populations grew. Once upon a time, in prehistory, in Europe, like many other areas of the world, it was covered by extensive forests. We, talked about modern, we talk about modern deforestation today, but probably nothing can match the devastation caused by our Neolithic ancestors, who practiced slash-and-burn agriculture for millennia and destroyed the ancient forests of Europe. Those dark, fearsome woodlands about which we hear in the works of historians such as Tacitus a Roman writer living in the first century AD and who wrote about, among other things, the conflicts between Romans and Germans in the deep forests of Central and Northern Europe. Even those forests are just the remnants of the ancient deep forests of Europe because the Neolithic farmers had already thousands of years before cleared much of the European soil by burning the woods and then farming in the ashes generation after generation. Hunter-gatherers, though, more suited to the environment, 
lived in the wilderness as a part of it, and flowed in the same river of life as their prey and their predators, living in the wild as just another wild creature. Nevertheless, come the farmers did, most likely across the Dardanelles, the narrow body of water separating Anatolia from Europe, and today known as the Straits of Gallipoli. By violence or through assimilation, they ended the Paleolithic hunter-gatherer cultures that had once carpeted Europe as much as the forests once had. The growing farmer cultures established their societies all over Europe, and in the Balkan and Greek region, they were not complacent or backwards. Forms of writing were in use here prior to 4000 BC. Some of the symbols used in this writing, known as the Old European Script, are identical to the ancient symbols used by prehistoric men for tens of thousands of years on that continent, but it is unknown if there is any continuity of meaning between these forms of communication, because even the old European script itself remains completely undeciphered to this day. So, this is the world that the westward migrating Indo-European speakers encountered when they arrived, either traversing the northern shores of the Black Sea and coming southward into the Balkan Peninsula, or crossing over from Anatolia, just as the farmers had several thousand years before. They came into a world of Neolithic agriculturalists who had replaced the hunter-gatherers. These farmers lived in settlements no larger than village-sized, as far as we can tell. They possessed the tools and the traits of the so-called Neolithic package, as discussed in a previous episode. About their religion and other facets of their culture, we still know very little. Now, the people of the Minoan culture on ancient Crete, as discussed in the last series, they were probably descendants of the same ancient farmers that entered Europe via Anatolia, and not descendants of the Indo-Europeans. So perhaps the religion or religions of their continental cousins was similar, based around some sort of mother goddess figure and around the concept of the bull. But in the end, we really don't know. Now, as the farmers had done to the hunter-gatherers before them, this new wave of Indo-European speakers replaced the farmers. There are alternate theories about this matter. One extreme idea suggests that they murdered the farmers virtually wholesale, and the, we explain the remaining genetic traces of those farmers still in European, in European blood as being explained by the new arrivals capturing and sexually subjugating the nubile women among the farmers. Another extreme would suggest that this was nothing more than just a slow migration, and the ancient farmers assimilated into the larger and more prosperous populations of the Indo-European speakers. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Nevertheless, by the early centuries of the second millennium BC, the Indo-European speaking migrants, to whom I will now refer to as the Proto-Greeks, had achieved dominance in the areas of the Balkan Peninsula that we now refer to as Greece. They had brought with them their Bronze Age metallurgy. Diverse, they had also brought diverse domestication of animals, including the horse, and likely they had brought a superior organization in military terms. They brought the wheel and the wagon with them, which not only would have made their approach to agriculture more effective and efficient, but would also give them, give them a significant leg up in combat. And one way or another, either through their own efforts or through their fellow Indo-European speakers to the east in Anatolia, these Proto-Greeks acquired the chariot, and there is no doubt that this tool of warfare, employed against those who do not possess the same weaponry, is completely devastating. If you are a Bible reader, recall the way that the Philistines seemed so invincible to the Israelites. The chariot was one way that the Philistines were able to so awe the Israelites. And as we will discuss later, the Philistines were most likely another branch of the Indo-European family tree, probably closely related to the Proto-Greeks of Mycenae. But we will get to that soon. Let's look now at the land that these Proto-Greeks came to conquer. 
the terrain of Greece, when you consider all of the land from Macedonia in the north to the Peloponnesus in the south, and everything from the west coast on the Ionian Sea to the Aegean Islands and the Straits of the Bosporus in the east, it is as varied as most large pieces of land anywhere on earth. But there are some defining characteristics about Greek geography that bear mentioning, because they would have a real impact on the formation of the Greek character, the molding of these proto-Greeks that established Mycenae and the realms that would succeed it through classical times a thousand years later. And let us not confuse the modern nation-state of Greece with the land of which I speak. Yes, they are similar in size, but the ancient Greek environment, that is, the total of the lands which they inhabited and the lands which, which they had direct and frequent interaction with, actually extends far beyond the present-day borders. Looking at a map today, we should consider places like Albania and Sicily and portions of the modern Macedonian Republic and Bulgaria and southern Italy and even Turkey to be a part of the Greek realm, all those cities and settlements and their populations among them contributing to Greek culture and history significantly. But as for the classic Greek geography, first of all, there is the Aegean Sea, the wine-dark sea of Homer. Even today, these waters are known for their beauty and for the numerous islands sprinkled between Greece and Anatolia. Both the sea and its islands would be responsible for eventually making the Greek into a formidable sailor, Greece has more coastline than any other country in Europe, and that is saying something when you consider that it exceeds the coastline of famous maritime nations such as Britain. Now, the sea is fundamentally necessary to have any chance of becoming a seafaring culture, but the many islands of the Aegean Sea, and there are literally thousands of them, these islands also encouraged naval activity. First, because they provided destinations to reach, many of them within sight of one another. And secondly, therefore, they also made sailing the sea easier because there was never a vast or unknown distance to cross. There was a certain reliability about encountering a haven of some sort nearby if there was trouble on the water. And these islands constitute some 20% of the total Greek territory today. Now, of course, the Aegean Sea is not the only sea to which the Greeks had access. The Greek peninsula juts southward into the Mediterranean, as if reaching out to islands like Crete and Rhodes. And then there is the Ionian Sea to the west. It is home to Ithaca, the island over which Odysseus ruled. Not far north of that is the Adriatic. And the Greeks, as we shall see in coming episodes, crossed westward through these waters to reach Sicily and southern Italy, where they established powerful realms amid the so-called barbarians. The shores of Greece are also punctuated with numerous natural bays and harbors where ships might shelter and navies might assemble for warfare. Now, what was the land like? As I've said, there is variety in the terrain of Greece, certainly, but it is perhaps best known for its ruggedness. Steep mountainsides climb away from its shores, but the land is not inimitable to agriculture. Here the Greeks grew sufficient wheat and other staples to support themselves through the centuries but they also nurtured vineyards and orchards of many kinds and olive trees, and they pastured a variety of livestock. Here there were not the mighty silt-depositing rivers of Mesopotamia and Egypt, nor the vast expanses of farmland that you might find in those realms, but swift-running streams did descend those mountainsides and descend, decant into ponds and lakes or into the wine-dark sea, generous with fish and sundry other marine life. About those mountains, Roughly 80% of modern Greece is mountainous. We hear, of course, of Mount Olympus, and our mind's eyes may grant it a certain grandeur, its snow-capped peaks home to the gods, from where Zeus might unleash a thunderbolt at any time. 
For those of us that live in more mountainous regions of other parts of the world, it might seem a little modest, however. This famed mountaintop didn't even reach 10,000 feet in height. But for the Greeks, standing as it did far to the north of places like Athens and Sparta, which were much closer to sea level, it was during the Dark Ages of Greece, when most of their myths may have been memorialized and when tales such as the Iliad and the Odyssey were composed in oral fashion, when they did not know the world as they would later, to them, Mount Olympus was an extreme location, distant, remote, celestial, the father to their own more southern ranges of climbing hills. The mountainous nature of the land also affected politics. On Crete, while it was not without mountains, it was much less rugged and easier for a ruler to exert his influence over the island as a whole. Not so in mainland Greece. Mountains divided the land into political pockets, small regions over which one person or a dynasty could rule and easily defend, and it was simultaneously difficult to conquer any other lands and hold them in perpetuity. Conquests do happen in such environments, but it is all too easy for the new governor of a land that a king conquered to simply declare himself the new ruler and to reestablish the old borders. In addition to these mountains, especially in these long ago times, there were dense forests still, their dark, looming constituents, descendants of those ancient trees that had stood before man ever came to this region. Though not a completely arid region, the soil here is drier and rockier than other lands, perhaps more hospitable to agriculture. Nevertheless, it is a good land for a variety of crops, including wine grapes, which grow better in such challenging soil, and the Greeks were more than capable of supplying themselves with sufficient provender, which they supplemented with catchings from the sea and herds of animals such as goats and pigs and others. Greece also was home to many olive tree orchards. Now, the climate of Greece is Mediterranean, with mild winters and hot, dry summers. In the highest mountain ranges, the climate transitions to something more alpine, and of course, farther inland, in the regions that will not concern our story until we come to Alexander the Great, the climate more resembles a continental European one. But down closer to the Mediterranean, near the shores of that wine-dark sea, it was a different story. If we could stand there, stand there in Greece on some summer day, on the shore of the Aegean Sea, perhaps, with the sea breeze in our faces, a cup of wine in one hand, and the smell of roast meat from a sacrifice wafting through the air, we might understand what brought the proto-Greeks here, either down out of the northern climes of central Eurasia and the endless steppes there, or from Anatolia, as other theories seem to suggest. Still, they also had to undergo great cultural changes to adapt to this new land. Their chariots and horses would have been less valuable on the steep mountainsides, though their superiority in weaponry and military tactics would have served them still. Their farther-flung cousins, who migrated over the centuries farther west and down south into the Italian peninsula, and who later became the Romans, they too would have to adapt their ways to a land quite different from those Eurasian flatlands and forests and the arable lands of ancient Anatolia, what drove any of these people to inhabit and acclimate themselves to such different regions? Was it merely the usual pressure of migration, of overpopulation, pushing the populations of successful societies to expand their, past their frontiers into new lands? Or did something draw them here to this paradoxical land, both garden-like and yet challenging? They don't seem to have been too offset by the challenges of this new land. The proto-Greeks that founded Mycenae, 
on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, seemed to have taken quickly to the maritime nature of their new life, for sure. They became menacing pirates in the Aegean, and a threat to powerful kingdoms like that of the Minoan civilization on the island of Crete. But they were also receptive to Minoan sophistication and refinement. While we do not have written accounts of this period, not yet anyway, it is clear from archaeological finds that Minoan culture was a strong influence on the newly arrived Indo-European speakers that founded Mycenae. It was not until the middle of the second millennium BC that the Minoan influence began to fade and the Mycenaeans appeared to become the dominant power in the Aegean. Now, unlike later portions of the Greek timeline, we cannot speak too certainly of what happened here and when and why. It's easier to pin down the dates of later events, such as the Battle of Salamis in September of 480 BC, or the final defeat of Darius III, King of Persia, in July of 330 BC, and it's much easier to understand what happened and why on those dates. But with regard to the transition from Minoan to Mycenaean hegemony in the Aegean, we cannot be so certain. I have spoken before in previous episodes on the possibility that the volcanic explosion of Thera, sometime during that second millennium BC, may have weakened the Minoans and left them more vulnerable to the growing threat of the Mycenaeans. Perhaps, though, it was simply the usual weakening of an already established society, becoming decadent and comfortable only to be subjugated by a more vigorous race of newcomers. Regardless, after 1500 BC, the Mycenaeans were clearly occupying Crete and enforcing their rule and culture there. Although, again, this was not a unified rule, but rather it appears more like a diaspora of powerful Mycenaeans over not just the island of Crete, but over all the islands of the Aegean and even onto the coast of Anatolia. Indeed, this is fitting with what we know of their later Greek descendants, Though Greek culture would eventually infiltrate into Egypt and conquer much of Asia in the coming centuries, the Greeks were only very briefly united under Alexander the Great. Before and after him, the Greeks were always a bubbling cauldron of energy and ideas, a creative yet chaotic force in the world, rarely capable of acting in unison except within their own subcultures, their own city-states. And so it appears that Mycenaean culture was just as divided. The capital, if we can call it that, in Mycenae was undoubtedly strong and influential, but it was probably not the capital of an empire. Let us consider now, then, this cultural center after which the historians have named an entire epoch in Aegean history. I speak of Mycenae itself, the ancient city on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. For our knowledge of the Mycenaeans and their dominions in the Aegean Sea, we have to give much thanks to a romantic, adventurous archaeologist born in 1822 in Germany. By the early 19th century, as I mentioned in the introductory podcast, there had been a change in the way that historians viewed the stories of Homer. Once accepted as virtual word-for-word historical fact by readers of the Middle Ages, Homer's epics were increasingly seen as works of fantasy, having little or nothing to do with the true past of the Aegean. This view actually left historians with very little to work on with regards to Greek history prior to the rise of the city-states of Athens and Sparta. Since, since things such as the Trojan War, the Achaean warrior heroes of Homer's stories, and even the city of Troy itself were presumed to be fictional, historians then focused their studies on the past on discoveries in Egypt and later in Mesopotamia to determine what the ancient world was really like. Places such as the Aegean were presumed to have been virtual backwaters with little or no history worthy of study. 
a lot of primitives eking out a living until the rise of classical Greece. But Heinrich Schliemann was raised on the romance of the Homeric epics about Achilles, Agamemnon, Odysseus, and the beauty of Helen and seductive Calypso and brave but doomed Hector of Troy. And this Schliemann, he was a voracious reader as well. He was also unusually ambitious, and he was financially brilliant. He started out his adult life at the age of 14, leaving school to become a grocery clerk. He rose from this humble beginning to become an international merchant. By the age of 36, he had acquired enough money and profits to retire for good and devote himself entirely to his true passion, archaeology. Unsatisfied living anywhere but in the land of his epic heroes of ancient Greece, Schliemann eventually moved to Greece. His wife was unwilling to go, so he left her behind. And at the age of 47, he took a 19-year-old Greek woman as his new wife, having selected her from photos sent in response to an advertisement he had placed in newspapers. Now, Schliemann was not a devout Christian, but his wife insisted on baptizing the children, and he only consented to the baptism if on one condition, and that was that he could lay a copy of the Iliad on each child's head during the holy ceremony. He named his firstborn son Agamemnon. The next year, he and his new wife journeyed to northwestern Anatolia. At the time, this area was deep in the heart of the Ottoman Empire, and they began to seek permission for what would become one of the most world-changing archaeological digs of all time. Together, the two of them dug away at the site that had long been reputed to be the location of ancient Troy. His faith and their effort were rewarded. While his Indiana Jones style of archaeology also had its drawbacks, he unintentionally destroyed many items and confused the location and therefore the timing of others, nevertheless, Schliemann's work revealed the truth behind the fiction, so to speak. At first, the authenticity of his discoveries was doubted, and it's true, in fact, he had not simply discovered the Troy of Homer, but something much more incredible. He had discovered evidence, evidence of a Bronze Age society that had been simultaneous with the New Kingdom of Egypt, and even older, in fact. Ultimately, it was discovered that there were some nine layers of ruins, nine iterations of Troy, and only one of them likely to be the one described in the Iliad. Not satisfied with this major achievement in life, Heinrich Schliemann decided to push the envelope again and moved operations to the Peloponnesian Peninsula in Greece, where he sought to uncover the remnants of the Achaeans, as the Greeks were so named in Homer's epics, the men who had traveled to Troy in revenge for the loss of beautiful Helen. Once again, Schliemann's faith in Homer was rewarded. He dug down and discovered ruins that he immediately named Mycenae because that had been the name of Agamemnon's city. One of his major discoveries at this site, a golden funeral mask, he declared as certainly belonging to Agamemnon himself. Schliemann, like devout Christians who see everything historical through the lens of the Bible, Schliemann saw all of his archaeological discoveries through the lens of the Iliad. He immediately tried to tie all of his discoveries to Agamemnon. Later archaeology would determine that these marvelous discoveries, the golden mask and other relics, were not actually anything even possibly related to Agamemnon, but rather things even more ancient, things belonging to another newly discovered civilization of the past, the Mycenaean civilization. As we begin to speak about Mycenae, we must discuss endings, the endings of lives, that is. One of the distinguishing markers of the Mycenaean civilization, as opposed to later Greek settlements on the site during the Dark Ages, the Classical period, and so on, 
One of these distinctions are the shaft graves. Now, shaft graves can get a bad name. At first description, one might imagine people stuffing their deceased loved ones feet first or folded into more convenient shapes into narrow holes in the ground. While certain earlier types of graves, such as Neolithic cyst graves, might fit this description, the royal shaft graves of Mycenae were much more than that. These were, after all, the burial customs of the powerful and the wealthy among the Mycenaeans. No, the term shaft grave is used to describe subterranean structures, typically rectangular, into which the bodies, belongings, and gifts associated with the deceased figure were placed for eternity. The idea here, the grandiosity to which they aspired, is not that different from that of the pharaohs in the Valley of Kings in Egypt around this same time, though the Egyptians were digging horizontally into valley walls and probably had a background of centuries or even millennia of experience in such construction. That is, the powerful of Mycenae wanted themselves and their close family to be entombed properly in a dignified fashion and not simply stuffed into the ground as their poorer subjects might do with their late loved ones. They wanted their deaths to be as stately as their lives had been, so they constructed shaft graves to preserve, as well as they could, their earthly glory. Presumably, they also believed that the items that accompanied them would follow them into the other world, where they might still be employed usefully. These graves were often underground rooms, containing not just the bodies of the dead, but also all those personal items, jewelry, gold, and artwork, and more. Simpler shaft graves of earlier times were only a meter or two in depth, but the later and greater ones were as much as four meters underground. Above the tombs, mounds marked the locations of each, gra of each grave, along with a stone funeral steel on which actions or moments from the deceased's life were engraved. Now, during the latest phase of Mycenaean culture, in the century right before the Bronze Age collapse, the rich and powerful of the land began placing their dead in deeper, domed, subterranean structures known as tholos, in Greek or beehive tombs in English, due to their shape. And after clearing out a substantial hole in the ground, these structures were built in the holes and then buried, their architecture designed to withstand the weight of the soil overhead. Now, this description of their burial customs is crucial for trying to understand the timeline of the epics of Homer as well. Anyone who has read those works knows that the dead heroes in the Iliad were cremated. One popular theory addresses this fact, that the Mycenaeans did not apparently cremate their dead, but used shaft graves. This therefore suggests, according to the theory, that the heroes of the Iliad are not Mycenaeans, or possibly that they are instead the products of imagination by Homer, who wrote during the Dark Ages of Greece several centuries later, and who simply applied his own cultural custom of cremating the dead to those ancient heroes, not knowing just how different they would have been from the men of his own day. Of course, it should also be remembered that the heroes of the Iliad are not at home. They are landed on a foreign beach. Perhaps cremation was an acceptable option for the Mycenaeans when overseas. But we'll come to the discussion of the epics and the mythologies and their writers later. Enough about death and graves for now. The Mycenaeans did much more than simply die and be buried. Graves are, however, one substantial way in which we've been able to retrieve knowledge about this ancient Bronze Age society. Now, Schliemann, the epic archaeologist, also discovered palaces in his digs, assuming always and incorrectly that they belonged to Greek heroes such as Agamemnon and Menelaus and so on. We will come to Agamemnon and the others soon enough, but if they were real people, they would have lived centuries after many of Schliemann's finds, as the intrepid German archaeologist and lover of all things ancient and Greek had really discovered something older than the Iliad. Now, these palaces display some cultural traits that would continue to characterize Greek society for centuries to come. 
in a city called Tiryns, that's T-I-R-Y-N-S, Tiryns, a contemporary city some 10 miles from Mycenae itself, there stood a massive citadel constructed of stone blocks. According to Pausanias, a Roman historian who lived much closer to this time period than we do, and who examined the ruins as they appeared then, the smallest of the blocks were so large and heavy that a pair of mules could not have hauled them away. Modern investigations have also discovered stone slabs six feet in length, three feet wide and three feet high. It is supposed that the later Greeks of the Dark Ages attributed these buildings to the Titans, a cohort of gods who predated the Pantheon with which we today are most familiar, Zeus and Athena and Apollo and so on. And we'll, we'll hear more about the Titans in the next episode. But the presence of this citadel and many others all around the Mycenaean world at the center of every small city state attest to the divisions that would remain in Greek life throughout virtually its entire period of cultural and political hegemony in the Eastern Mediterranean. Even just the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is a tiny fragment of land in the wide world and nothing in comparison to the great unified kingdoms that coexist at this time in Egypt and Mesopotamia, even the Peloponnesian Peninsula is divided into multiple fractious realms that constantly form and shift alliances and entities. These ruins also display other traits of later Greek society. Such citadels are later known as Acropolises. The word Acropolis comes from the Greek word acro, meaning high, and polis, meaning city. It refers possibly to being over the city itself, the citadel being, being the castle to which the inhabitants might retreat during an attack or other emergency. Now, at the beginning of a settlement's existence, when it was still small, the Acropolis and its immediate environs might house the leadership and virtually the entire population. But as a town grew, the Acropolis became something more centralized. When not under duress, the Acropolis was a place where the community might gather for religious or commercial purposes as well. An Acropolis typically contained a megaron, a large rectangular hall, sometimes as much as 50 feet high, housing a central hearth, supported by columns and containing the throne of the ruler, known in Greek as the Wanax, the W-A-N-A-X. This is translated as king. The floors of these rooms were paved with cement. In distinction to the houses and other residential structures of ancient Crete, the Mycenaean buildings distinctly separate the quarters of women from those of men. The location of the women among these rooms was known as the gynaecum. That's G-Y-N-A-E-C-U-M. It is not uncommon for a modern Westerner to think of the separation of men from women as something distinctly Eastern and not a part of the Western tradition. But really, the free mingling of men and women in Western history is a, tra a trait introduced only by the Romans at a much later date. Indeed, in the cultural meetings between Romans and Greeks, the latter were often shocked and even appalled at the way that Roman men and women sat at dinner together. Among the Greeks, this freedom of social intercourse was unusual, to say the least. Now, the Greeks of classical times thought of the Mycenaeans, when they considered their ruins, as being the aboriginals, the original people of the land, which just goes to show how the prehistoric world was lost even to some of our more ancient ancestors. The Mycenaeans, in fact, had displaced another nameless culture, as previously mentioned, arriving most likely as the first wave of Indo-European speakers coming out of the north or from across the Aegean in Anatolia. Now, in referring to these ancestors, to the Mycenaeans, the later Greeks called them the Pelasgi, that's P-E-L-A-S-G-I, possibly meaning seagoing people. Now, despite the apparent reference, this should not confuse them with the sea people that I mentioned in a previous episode in the last series when describing the Bronze Age collapse. 
The Mycenaeans were living and thriving in Greece many centuries before that regional disaster. Now, if they did partake in the chaos inflicted by the Sea Peoples on Near Eastern society after 1200 BC, and I am going to discuss that possibility, they did so in a different incarnation, after much transformation of their society. We will get to the Greek experience of the Bronze Age collapse soon. Now, when we consider the civilization of Mycenae, we must tell ourselves a story, which is not a very scientific way of describing any historical culture. We can speak with much more precision about realms like ancient Egypt, the Persian Empire, the Romans, the Europe of Charlemagne. All these kingdoms and realms documented their own rise and fall to one extent or another. But about Mycenae, we can only piece together the fragments of ruins, some memories, and some mythological interpretation. We picture the Mycenaeans coming down into the region, either along the western shore of the Black Sea or coming across the Straits of Gallipoli from Anatolia. This may have happened around 2000 BC. They settled over the centuries into the Greek peninsula, displacing the Neolithic farmers as already described. Then they began to absorb cultural refinements from the Minoans on Crete. And most likely, being as warlike as we know that they were, they probably had an on-again, off-again relationship with the Minoans, sometimes trading with them, other times raiding them as pirates. Because they learned sea craft, these Mycenaeans, did they pick it up while migrating along the shores of the Black Sea, learn from locals that they conquered, or did the Minoans teach it to them? It's hard to say. We do know that they slowly transitioned from outright piracy to the legalized form of robbery, taxation, because over the centuries they became a more stable society and established long-lasting local governments. Though as a whole, they were still divided into numerous city-states, each with its own dialect of ancient Pelasgian Greek and with its own government, its own religious shrines, and so on. They were friendly enough with each other, however, even if not united in an empire, to cooperate with regard to long-distance trade. At some juncture during these centuries, the Mycenaeans began trading directly with Egypt, rather than using the Minoans as their middlemen on the much easier-to-reach island of Crete. This, among other things, may have been the cause of the apparent conflict between the two cultures in the middle of that millennium, and the conquest of Crete by the Mycenaeans. So, there was a period of several centuries in which we can imagine the Mycenaeans absorbing Cretan culture, perhaps, or at least mimicking it in some ways, learning from it. And then after the mid-second millennium BC, there's a change in the tide of cultural flow. Minoan art on Crete declines. At Mycenae and other cultural outposts, painting flourishes, at least in the forms which have survived to our day, in frescoes and other decorative designs. And apparently as a result of Mycenaean occupation of the island, Mycenaean-style art be begins to appear on Crete itself. And the Mycenaeans develop a system of writing based on the Minoan writing system that we remember as Linear A. The Mycenaean version is called Linear B. They used the characters of Linear A as the basis for their script, but wrote their own language with it. Now, Linear A remains undeciphered, but Linear B was successfully deciphered last century. The Mycenaeans used this script, it turns out, mostly for administrative purposes, as far as we can tell. But some tablets that survive do reveal to us some tantalizing suggestions about Mycenaean religion. There are inscriptions giving us the names of what appear to be gods. More about that in this episode's next segment. There are, however, no examples of epic poetry, no Iliads or tales of Gilgamesh to be found among the ruins of Mycenae. What poetry they did possess, and surely they did, they must have preserved only in oral fashion. Indeed, the clay tablets on which we find examples of Linear B have only survived to the present day by pure chance. 
the tablets that we have were only preserved through the years because they were baked in fires, that is, in conflagrations, not on purpose. In other words, they are the discarded remnants of fires that burned down some particular administrative building or storeroom at a different period of time. And these tablets are records of shipments of goods and employment files and payrolls and debt registries and lists of offerings to deities and so on. The best work of the Mycenaeans, in which they surpassed even their Minoan contemporaries, was in metal. This makes sense, the success of the Mycenaeans most likely being based on their embrace of Bronze Age metallurgy. But they worked in every metal, not simply in making weapons. The goods found in the shaft graves, those that were not long ago plundered, are beautiful examples of jewelry and carefully shaped are the golden masks placed over the faces of the dead. The late warriors armed with daggers of burnished bronze, their women adorned with jewelry delicately designed, and everywhere are cups of beaten gold and figurines of silver, fierce bulls and maternal cows prominent among them. Bulls and cows, emblems of fierce, virile masculinity and generous, ever-productive femininity. In such relics, crafted from precious metals or carved out of rock or translucent minerals, we find the father and mother of Greek religion, perhaps. We know that some maternal figure, some symbol of maternity, of female fertility, has long dominated human religion in the West. This trend is visible in the oldest religious artifacts from the Paleolithic, such as the grossly obese female idols, their enormous breasts, likely symbolic of fertility. These were discovered in Paleolithic layers in Europe all over. And this worship of the feminine continues to be visible, tangible even, in many religions today, such as traditional forms of Christianity, Catholicism, or Greek Orthodoxy with their attachment to Mary and the endless statues, icons, and paintings of the Blessed Mother. What exemplified masculinity in the earliest religion of the Paleolithic era, we do not know for sure, but by the time that animal domestication is in full swing some 10,000 years ago, it becomes obvious that the bull, with its rippling musculature, its brutal glaring eyes, and its reputation for reckless but valiant charges, the bull has come to symbolize and embody the foundations of virility across many Western cultures, including the nascent Greek civilization on the shores of the Aegean. It is impossible, with the existing knowledge that we have at this point, to be sure about the earliest Mycenaean religion. We do know that after they established themselves, they absorbed elements of the Minoan religion in a practice, intentional or not, known as syncretism, in which distinct belief systems are combined to create new theologies, new pantheons, new mythologies, etc. Now, in future episodes, I will lay out the classic Greek mythology as we learn it in school. I will also try to describe how this full-fledged pantheon was composed out of more disparate elements of regional and local religious shrines into an orderly and hierarchical religious atmosphere. For this episode, regarding the Mycenaeans, we have a much scantier body of knowledge to work with, a few inscriptions here and there. As time goes by, hopefully, we will discover more about this ancient mythology and flesh out our knowledge of the earliest Western religions. But, with what we have on hand, it appears that Poseidon, the god of the sea, held a very prominent place among the Mycenaeans. This is in contrast to the later arrangement of the gods which we know from Greek writers such as Hesiod and Homer, and in which Zeus is the undisputed leader of the gods. 
Indeed, by the time of Homer, Zeus is so all-powerful that he has come to make the other gods seem a little superfluous. And we recall this trend as already seen in maturing religions from previous episodes about Near Eastern religion, in which specific gods, such as Marduk in Mesopotamia or Aten in Egypt, came to be seen as superior to all the others in their polytheistic pantheons. It makes sense that the Mycenaeans might have been more concerned with Poseidon than any other god, though, because if they were so dependent on the sea for their livelihood, they would have been asking him, perhaps, for safe, good sailing weather or sizable catches of fish. And they may have also sought to placate him and to deter earthquakes and tsunamis. Now, is this a case in which the chief god of the Pantheon was once Poseidon and power shifted to Zeus over the centuries? It would be unwise to guess. Any day, more information could turn up and establish that it was really Zeus all along and that the inscriptions referring to Poseidon were just luckily the first ones to turn up as a result of archaeology. But in the next episode, I will get sincerely into mythology and look at what are believed to be the most primitive or earliest of the Greek spiritual beliefs. But what makes these recent discoveries about Mycenaean religion so interesting is that they are already referencing what is believed to be the latest and last pantheon of gods in Greek mythology, that is, the Twelve Olympians. Whereas we know that the earliest gods of Greek myth are the same as they were in Sumer and other places, the earth and the sky. And after that, there was a whole pantheon of gods, the Titans, who were later superseded by Zeus and the others which just confirms that the worship of the Titans and the earth and the sky must have an origin much earlier than the mid-2nd century, 2nd millennium BC, rather. Now, it is tempting to draw lines between these, this chronology and, this, for instance, the names of the gods in Sumer, which are quite similar to the names of the earth and sky god in Greek. But for educational purposes, I must resist, because it would all be imaginary. We have to resist speculation and just move on with what we know about the gods of the Mycenaeans. Now, among the discovered inscriptions, there are also references to one Atana, which is probably Athena. Now, there are other depictions of a figure or a goddess who may be Athena, holding a shield and appearing as some sort of war goddess, which would be likely for her, but still, it's speculative. There is nothing telling us that it is, in fact, her. Now Dionysius is also referenced directly in these inscriptions, which is interesting because this god of wine has often been interpreted as a later addition to the Olympians, yet here he is already worshipped by the Mycenaeans, centuries before Homer and Hesiod and others will relate their stories of their, of their gods. Now there are other possible references to other gods of the later Greek pantheon under names that are sometimes similar, but looking at the evidence, I have to say that there's just a lot of speculation about this matter, with the evidence that we have anyway, and at least with regard to the specifics and to the names. But what is clear, though, is that the Mycenaean religion did have many points of similarity with the later Greek beliefs, and I absolutely concur with the scholars when they aver that the Mycenaean religion is the mother of the Greek pantheon. I began discussion of the Mycenaeans with endings, with talking about shaft graves and beehive tombs, and we must return to a discussion of endings now. Because end the Mycenaean civilization did, but there's a mystery attached to their ending. Most historic civilizations do seem to have ended mysteriously, probably just because we were not present to see the 
obvious reasons for their demise. But it is not even clear that the Mycenaean civilization did come to a clean end. In other words, having a fall and being replaced by another dominant culture as happened to the Minoans. There are several ways to interpret the existing evidence with regard to the Mycenaean fall. But first, we must reference the event that is central to any discussion of the Mycenaean denouement, the Bronze Age collapse. Now, this matter was discussed in the last series. We know some fascinating details that suggest all sorts of possibilities, but there is little in the way of hard factual knowledge about this time period. The kingdoms of the ancient Near East at this time, sometime in the decades after 1200 BC, suffered a series of massive attacks by people whom they all describe with names that are suspiciously close to the Greek tribal names of Achaeans and Danaeans and others. About this time as well, the Philistines arrive on the coast of Canaan, just in time to meet the Israelites arriving from the opposite direction via the Jordan River. And these Philistines produce artwork and pottery that is nearly identical to Mycenaean designs. So, did the Mycenaeans suddenly run amok? Did they go on an unexpected rampage after centuries of appearing to settle down? It seems an unlikely story arc. But there are intriguing connections to be made from Greek stories about this time period. For instance, I mentioned in an earlier episode that there is a reference to a solar eclipse in the Odyssey when the hero returns home after being away at war for 20 years. This eclipse is likely one that would have happened in 1178 BC, meaning that the Trojan War would have begun pretty close to that 1200 BC mark. Now, what does the Trojan War have to do with the Bronze Age collapse? Did it cause the collapse? Or was it another one of the assaults mentioned by the ancients in describing the attacks of the Sea Peoples? Remember, the heroes of the Iliad arrived in ships. Is the Iliad and all the stories of the Trojan War a description of the Bronze Age collapse from the perspective of the Sea Peoples? Some would posit that the Trojan War, whatever its causes, sparked a collapse because Troy would have been a major trade nexus. Consider that it is near Byzantium, later named Constantinople, later named Istanbul, which controlled international trade routes between Asia and Europe for thousands of years. Did the ruin of Troy cause a chain reaction, economically and politically? This obviously reflected back on the Greeks, or the Mycenaeans, when we see how Agamemnon was slaughtered upon return, and Odysseus had to struggle to reacquire his own throne. Did the Mycenaean world fall apart as a result of succession struggles after the war? And did the shattered remnants of the Mycenaean world, now deprived upon the trade upon which they had come to rely due to the disruptions caused by their own attack on Troy, did they now take to the sea and raid the Near East out of desperation, out of pure survival instinct? Now, of course, it may be that the heroes of the Iliad are not even Mycenaeans. Perhaps another Greek myth explains all this disruption in the late second millennium BC. Now, there is an ancient Greek oral tradition about an event known as the return of the Heracles. The term Heracles refers to the sons or progeny of Heracles, the Greek demigod of strength, whom most of my listeners probably know through Roman tradition as Hercules. According to the story, Zeus, the father of Heracles, had promised rule over a significant portion of the Peloponnesus to Heracles and his posterity, but his throne was usurped by the king of Mycenae. Heracles later died an agonizing death, which I will relate in a future episode. Following this, the exiled sons of Heracles allegedly vowed to return to take revenge and to seize control of the kingdom to which they were entitled. History may demonstrate that they did indeed return. Given the layout of Greek dialects in the region, 
historians have speculated that there was, at some time, an invasion of the Peloponnesus by speakers of the Doric dialect of Greek. Some have tried to connect this invasion, for which there is no real physical evidence, to the Bronze Age collapse and the end of Mycenae. Were these Doric speakers and speakers of another dialect known as Aetolian, were, were they the so-called sons of Heracles, either arriving or returning to the region? Is the existing myth a somewhat, a somewhat imprecise version of the tale of migration of a new element into Greece? Were Agamemnon, Achilles, and Odysseus members of this new invasion of Greek speakers? Did they destroy Mycenae and then go on to raid the kingdoms of the Near East and become remembered to history as the Sea Peoples? During the later classical period, the people of Crete spoke Doric Greek as well, which suggests an outflow of such speakers from the mainland to more distant parts. The mystery remains a mystery. When we come to discuss Greek mythology and the heroes of the Iliad again, it will be largely to discuss them as literary figures and to understand their roles in the stories as they are received. The historical and archeological roots beneath their, beneath their feet remain, for the present time anyway, obscured beneath the ground much as the ruins of Mycenae were buried for centuries. Maybe someday we will be able to know more about these figures, both literary or historical. What followed the Bronze Age collapse in the Greek region is known as the Greek Dark Ages. The next several episodes, really the entire remainder of this first unit, will deal with that time period. This is when Hesiod wrote the Theogony about the procession of the gods out of the beginning of the world, and his book Works and Days, which helpfully describes much of the Greek life in the Dark Ages after the fall of Mycenae. This will also include a discussion of the Trojan War, that pivotal event in Greek memory, even down through classical times. And we will cover the Iliad and the Odyssey, of course. In the meantime, please remember to check out the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. Look around, leave a comment, and if you can, support the podcast through PayPal or Patreon. Until next time, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.